Lord, we ask that you would now be with us as we come and open up your word. Thank you that your word is truth. Thank you that the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, is with us now, helping us to hear your word, to believe your word, and then to be doers of your word, and to delight in your word. So help us do that this morning. Help me to speak clearly and faithfully as I should. God, and we thank you so much for Jesus and the gospel, and we, we rejoice in that, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you've got a Bible with you, a paper copy, or on your, your phone, just open up to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 is a very long chapter, um, 39 verses, and it's, and it's dense, so we're going to go through it again fairly quickly. Um, I'm going to be away, by the way, for, for or sorry, not away, but I'm going to be not preaching for the next couple of weeks. So we, you have the privilege of getting to hear next week from Andrew Tran, who's going to be down from North Adelaide. Uh, City Light North Adelaide is going to be preaching on Hebrews 11. And the week after that, we get to invite and welcome uh, Jake Swadling, who's the pastor up at Anchor Church in Port Adelaide, um, to come and bring us the first part of Hebrews chapter 12. So I'm really excited just to be here and be where you are and listening um, rather than talking. Um, so, but this morning, we're in, we're in chapter 10. Uh, chapter 10, the first half of it, for up through verse 18, is kind of like the closing argument, if he was a, a lawyer, um, that he's making, that he's been making the same argument for chapters 5 through 9, and so you're going to hear a bit of repetition, and that's okay, because if you, some of you are teachers, you know that repetition is not a bad thing. For us to, to learn, we need to hear things multiple times to really get it in there. So we're going to be hearing some of those things this morning. But then at the end of chapter 18, verses 19 and onward, he, gets, he turns to a little bit more practical. Like now that we've believed these things, now that we've seen these things, now that we know these things, now what do we do with it? What do we do with the things that we've seen? What do we do with the things that, we've, that we know? So that's where we're going. So over the last two weeks in particular, we have... Um, We've been looking at the promises of the new covenant, and I'm not going to define those, the covenant, and that, you can go back and listen to the podcast for the past couple of weeks for that, but we, we're, we're the new covenant people. We're living under the promises of the new covenant, and we looked at the ways last week that Jesus just smashes every barrier between us and God, barriers that have been around all the way since the time of the Garden of Eden, since Adam and Eve, our first parents, sinned. Uh, against God. And so now we're, he's going to weave all of those little strands that we've been looking at to a conclusion and then give us some instructions, some implications, and some encouragement. And I think that's really, really good for us. Um, he's going to tell us to do some things and not to do some things. And there's going to be some overlap, and that's okay. So I'm going to start by reading just the first 18 verses because it's a long chapter. I'm going to break it up in chunks. So I'll read the first 18 verses and then make some comments, and then we'll read the, the later section. So join me in reading, starting in verse 1. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered, since the worshipers, purified once and for all, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, you did not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, 
See, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. After he says above, you did not desire and delight in sacrifice, desire or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. He then says, see, I've come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. By this will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He's now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For, one by, for by one offering, he is perfected forever, those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this, for after he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, the Lord says, I will put my laws on their hearts, and I will write them on their minds, and I will never again remember their sins and lawless acts. Now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. All right, that's the first part of chapter 10, and you're going to, probably sounds a bit familiar, because a lot of this we've been talking about for the past few weeks. Let me ask you this question. I wonder, have any of you ever been scared by a shadow? You've seen a shadow of something and it's been a bit frightening. Uh, you know, some animals, some small children, some larger children can be scared of their own shadows because they think of it as a, a separate being to themselves. And whether you're scared by a shadow or not has a lot to do with not the shadow itself, but what's causing it. What's causing the shadow? You might see a shadow that might look like, you know, a big scary beast of some sort creeping up behind you, and you, you turn around and you realize, oh, it's just mom, it's just dad. Nothing to be afraid of. The preacher of Hebrews is making this closing argument here that the law, the tabernacle, the animal sacrifices for sin that were required by the Old Testament law, by the Old Covenant, they were shadows pointing to the one, Jesus, who is coming into the world. We've heard some incredibly tragic stories recently of being, um, people being lost, you know, in the bush or, or lost at sea. And, and sometimes a rescue party arrives uh, in time, sometimes it doesn't. But imagine that you were alone in a remote bushland somewhere, and then all of a sudden you see a shadow. And, and the shadow is getting closer and closer and closer uh, to where you are. What would you think? At that moment, looking at the shadow, would you, would you begin to celebrate that your rescue, someone has come to find you? Well, it depends, because you don't know what the shadow is. It could be a rescuer. It could be an animal. It could be something dangerous. You only start to celebrate when you realize what, what's causing the shadow. It's something uh, friendly around the corner. That's what changes everything. God's people had experienced hundreds of years of looking at these shadows of, as C.S. Lewis put it, living in the shadow lands. And, and, and they had brought sacrifices year after year after year, it says, to the temple, to the tabernacle. And, and, and they did this because they had to. It was required of them in the law. It was obedience to God. But they knew. They knew it wasn't enough. Why weren't the shadows enough? Why weren't the sacrifices enough to guarantee a, a happy ending to their story. Well, reason number one, the sacrifices were limited in scope. Every time you would go sacrifice, you would be, you know, for your, for your, on behalf of your family, that sacrifice would cover just you and your family 
and it would only cover the sins that you had committed in a very set period of time, perhaps for the previous year, maybe for the previous week, um, depends. But it was a set period of time for a set number of people. They were limited in scope, which is why in verses 2 to 4, the preacher highlights the sacrifices being repeated year after year after year by multiple people. I'm going to borrow an illustration I've heard someone else make. I can't remember uh, who, uh, where it came from, but he um, was talking about a, the, the person making the illustration was a diabetic. And he talked about what it was like to be diabetic, that, you know, if, if that's any of you in here listening, you, you know that you'll have, you have to um, monitor yourself daily, multiple times a day. You have to monitor your blood sugar levels, and you have to check yourself. And, and then if you are low, then you might need to inject yourself with insulin. Now, what if, imagine this for a minute, if you were suffering in this way, there was invented a particular injection that you could use just once, and you would be cured for life. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be a bit? Now imagine if that was the case. There was some kind of cure for diabetes that you could inject yourself with once for all, and you're like, nah, no nah, thanks. I'd rather go, you know, stick with my daily injections, my daily, you know, checking my blood sugar. No one would do that, because if there was something that was that effective, that would cure you once for all, you would do it, right? Well, this is the argument that the preacher is making here. Jesus' sacrifice is once for all. It's completely finished. You don't need to go back to the old way because it's done. It's perfected. Jesus, and we saw this last week, he bridges the gap between time, the time that we live in, and eternity, which is outside of time, between this age and the age to come. And so when he offered himself as a sacrifice, he offered his body, its effect, it wasn't just limited to one person or one family or one nation or one period of time. It was once for all. Uh, the, the law, the shadow, not the reality, it says, can never perfect the worshipers by these same sacrifices year after year after year. But jump down to verse 14. For by one offering, one offering, one injection, one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. What the law could not do, to paraphrase Paul in Romans 8, what the law could not do, God did through Jesus. Now, the second reason the sacrifices weren't enough, I said they were limited in scope, they were also limited in value. Uh, look at verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Why? Because animal blood is not magic. There's nothing magical about it. Blood of animals sprinkled on an altar or on the outside of a body does nothing to change the inside of that person. Does nothing to change the heart. And it, it, You might know this. If, if your heart doesn't change, then your behavior isn't going to change because your heart is what drives your behavior. It's the control center of who you are. And so if, you know, blood can't change what's going on in the heart. He, he quotes from uh, Psalm 40 in verses 5 to 7, and he interprets these words as coming from the mouth of Jesus. It says, God prepared for Jesus a body. He gave Jesus a body, and he sent him to earth to do God's will, meaning that he would always obey he would never sin. 
He would always do what the Father wanted him to do. And then that would take him all the way to that ultimate act of obedience, that ultimate act of worship where he would offer that body as a sin offering on the cross. And all that goes to show that the thing that God wants more than any sacrifice is what? It's obedience. He, he wants people with hearts that don't just begrudgingly do his will, but delight in doing his will. Delight to know him. That's what God the Father wants of you. And so he sent Jesus to prepare the way to make that possible for us, for you and me, and anybody who believes in Jesus to have a heart that literally delights to do his will, to long for him. The sacrifices, you see, were limited in both scope and value. They were shadows that pointed forward to the better sacrifice that God himself would provide. But you see, the thing is, is that just like in Hebrews, there are some people who prefer the shadows over the real thing. And that's why the preacher is preaching. Because he knew that there were people that were listening, that were exchanging the reality of Christ for the shadows. For the original audience, that probably meant they were going back to the Jewish sacrificial traditions, being saved by the law. But for us, it's different. We, we have our own shadows that we tend to prefer. The other things that we leave Jesus behind to chase after, things like money or relationships or ease or living your best life now, all of these things, are, they're good things, but they, they're shadows compared to the reality of Christ and the promises of the gospel. And this, this whole theological section is a beautiful argument. He holds up Jesus as the better sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice. He's the better tabernacle. He's the better high priest. All of this has a very practical purpose because you and I, we need to see the real thing, not the shadow. You need to see him to trust him because that's how you know you've, you've been saved. That's how you know you've been rescued because you've seen the real thing, not just the shadow. You know what's around the corner. You know what's coming and you know that you're saved. First 18 verses of, Je of Hebrews 10, they don't tell us exactly why a person might choose the shadow over Jesus, but let me give you three inferences, three reasons why you might do it. Number one, you underestimate the scope of your sin. You underestimate the scope of your sin. This is what we might call the, the problem of old religion. My sin really isn't that bad. My heart was in the right place. It wasn't my fault. So I can do a ritual of some kind. I can give money. I can, I can help someone in need. I can do something good to balance the scales. I can say a hundred Hail, Hail Marys, whatever it is, to balance the scales. Problem solved. But see, none of these things get to the heart of the problem. Remember, what causes you and me to sin is, is what's going on in the heart. And nothing, no ritual can change that. No ritual can fix my de broken desires. Sometimes we don't do ritual, we just, you know, escape from it. We just try to forget. So you turn on the TV, you get preoccupied with something, so I don't have to think about the sinful stuff, the brokenness in my own heart. And see, this is a problem for Christians too. We who are under the new covenant promises, we've been sanctified. 
We have, you have an undivided heart. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago that wants to know God and wants to do his will. But there's still a process ongoing, isn't there? To make that heart understand what is true. Let me read verse 14 from a different translation to sort of help you see this. This is from the ESV, verse 14. It, it, gets better, it gets the better of the sense there. He says, for by a single offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time. So that's a past tense, finished work. Perfected for all time. Those who are, now look, look at this, who are being sanctified. Those who are being sanctified progressively over time. See, if you're a Christian, you've already been given a perfect status before God. You're a saint. You're sanctified, past tense, based on the finished work of Jesus. But you are also in this life, before Jesus comes back, before you meet him, you are being sanctified, progressively, day by day. Not instantly, not microwave style. You are being changed. You're growing into maturity bit by bit as the Holy Spirit does his work in you. And this is all by design. You, you already have a perfect standing before God. You're already a saint, and at the same time, God is making you like Jesus. He's teaching you to kill off sinful thoughts and habits and attitudes and behavior, and he's making you perfect. See, only God can fully address the full scope of the problem of the human heart. Only God can do that kind of transforming work. He's the only one who has the power and the wisdom. So trust him and, and not the shadows. So not only do we underestimate the scope of our sin, we also underestimate the value of Jesus' sacrifice. You know, if you're a Christian, you might be, uh, sorry, if you're not a Christian, you, you might be curious about the cross, but it doesn't captivate you. You don't bank your life on it. For, for Christians... Our problem is that we think that the gospel of Christ, the cross, is what gets us saved. Way back when, maybe at an Easter camp, some, you know, when I was in, a teenager. And then we move on to something more practical. We move on to the day, you know, getting through each and every day. But you know, like the Apostle Paul, he said when he was preaching, and he was probably the best preacher that's ever lived, second to Jesus, he said, I will never graduate from the cross. I will never move on. I have resolved to know one thing, and that is Christ crucified every single day. On any given moment, whether you're doing well or whether you're struggling, whether you have enough or, or not, whether you feel like you're enough or not, you can look to Jesus. You can look to the cross and know that you are a free man. You're a free woman. That's why we celebrate communion every single week. We don't move on from it. Communion points us back to that decisive moment in history and that decisive moment in your story where that transforming work began. And it points forward to the day when that work will be finished, when all your faith will be sight, when you will be there face to face with Jesus and with Christians from every nation, every people group on the planet, from history, you know, Christians from Mongolia, Christians from Brazil, Christians from tribes that we don't even know exist, and they'll be there around the throne of Jesus. And here's Revelation chapter 5. Here's what we're going to sing. Here's the lyrics. 
You can study them now because you're going to learn that. You're going to sing it then. You, this is Jesus, are worthy to take the scroll and open its seal. That means you're worthy to bring in the good things, the good things, the restoring of all, all things, of all, all creation. He said, you're worthy because you were slaughtered. Because of the cross. We're going to be singing about the cross for eternity. <laughs> you were worthy because you were slaughtered. And you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. See, never underestimate the value of Jesus' blood. It is supremely powerful. And he is supremely better, supremely worthy. His one sacrifice was enough to save you and to keep you. So you can trust him. You can wait for him. Even when it seems like all I see is the shadows, his promises, the reality of his coming seems far away. Look at verse 13, though. He is waiting why? He's waiting until all his enemies are made a footstool. That's a, another quote from Psalm 110. Do you know what that looks like in your life? This process of God's enemies being made a footstool? Every time you wake up in the morning and believe his promises to you. Every time you celebrate his goodness. Every time you resist the urge to walk away. Every time you do that on your own or with people in your DG or every, every time you do that, he is making his enemies a footstool. He is making Jesus supreme in your eyes and in the eyes of people around you and in the, the world around you. In the midst of your ordinary life, in the midst of my ordinary life, in the midst of our struggle, that's what he's doing. He's waiting and seeing Jesus being made supreme in you through you, every day, one day closer to seeing him face to face. So you can trust him. You can trust what he's doing. All right, let me, let me read the next section. This is starting in verse 19, because this is where he makes this transition and starts getting a bit more direct, a bit more perhaps practical. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus... He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. All right. So it's the transition. Jesus is better. So what? What does that actually mean? How do we live while we wait for him to appear? Verses 19 to 21 is this beautiful summary of everything we've heard so far. If you go all the way back to the very beginning of this theological section, go back to chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, and read them side by side to verses 19 to 21. It's almost exactly the same. It's like two bookends on the end of this section. Therefore, here's truth number one. We have boldness to enter the sanctuary. We have confidence to approach the throne of grace. That's the, what it says in chapter 4, but it's almost the exact same idea. He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain. That was the symbolic barrier. It is now torn down. Um, just as his body was torn apart, the, it symbolized the curtain being torn apart, the separation, the barrier being smashed. And since we have a great high priest 
over the house of God. That's truth number two. And we've been looking at this. We now have what? We have access to the presence of God and an advocate in Jesus once we're in. That's the gospel. But how do we live? There are some commands in this section. There are three. Verse 22, let us draw near to God. Verse 23, let us hold on. And verse 24, let us consider or watch out for one another. These are commands about worship. About worship. Not just Sunday worship, but daily worship. Worship is the activity that keeps our eyes, your eyes fixed on the reality of Jesus so we trust and chase after him and, and not the shadows. You can think of it like maybe a bit like going to your favorite pub or your favorite cafe or your restaurant. What, what is it? Just for a second. Get in your mind your fa the favorite place you've got to go eat. And now when you think about going to that place, wherever it is, how do you, how do, you do it? What, do you, what preparations do you make? Well, I would think that if you go, if it's really that good, then you go hungry, right? You go there hungry. And you probably, if as much as you can, you go often. And if it's really good, you go with friends. You introduce as many people as you can to that place. You go hungry, you go often, and you go with friends. Now, that's ex essentially what he's saying here about worship. He says, go to God hungry, expecting to be satisfied. That's verse 22. If you believe that Jesus is better, then you go to him how? With a true heart, in full assurance of faith. Worship is not about ticking boxes. It's all in. Head and heart, body and soul. Jesus' blood has made you clean inside and out, so it's not just an outward thing. The shadows couldn't do that, but Jesus did. Gathering with the church on Sunday, just like worshiping God in your, in your own prayer and in Bible reading or with your DG or... It's not about ticking boxes so that God approves of you. It's not about cleaning yourself up on the outside. That was the old system. It's not for God's ego. It's for his glory. And his glory is in your joy. That doesn't mean you always have to feel like worship. A lot of the time we don't. And that's okay. You know, most of the time we feel like our sins are too big. Our bodies are too tired. Our questions are too confusing. Our hurt is just too bitter. And Satan will come along and he will pour water on those feelings and make them grow and grow and grow. But you know what cuts through all that? What cuts through the growth? Jesus' blood. And the best place for you to be when you're tired, confused, defeated, bitter is in the arms of the God who loves you. The God who is truth. And that's where you'll be satisfied. You've got to go hungry. You've got to get close to him. Secondly, you, you go often. Verse 23, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. See, worship is a daily thing. It, it, it's not a, just a once a week, tick the box. It's a, it's a daily holding on. It's a daily commitment. Sometimes I struggle. I don't know about you. I struggle how to pray or to feel like praying, I don't know. If you can relate, Jesus gave this model, I think, for this reason, because he knew we would struggle. And, he, and these aren't magic words. But listen to the daily, you know, Lord, your kingdom come today on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done today. Give us today your daily bread. Forgive us our sins today. 
Not because Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough for today and tomorrow and the thousand tomorrows later. It was once for all time. And we can, we can approach him at all times at any moment, not to get saved over and over again, but to teach our hearts over and over again to believe that it's true. That's why we go every day. Go hungry, go often, and go with friends. Don't go to worship alone. You're part of a family. Verse 24, let us consider one another. Listen, God has providentially, on purpose, placed you in a family. Just like in your biological family, he's placed you in a church family for this season of your life. Nobody is here by accident. You are God's gift to me. You are God's gift to each other. That we all might be encouraged. That we all might learn to worship. That we all might be provoked in a good way. That we all get there together in the end. That's why we meet together regularly. Look at this verse about not neglecting meeting together. It's verse 25. It does mean that you should gather as a church regularly. It doesn't mean you have to be at every single thing that's on the church calendar. So if you grew up and that was kind of your, what you came from, that, you know, you got to be there whenever the church doors open. If you're not, you're bad. That's not what this is saying. I want to relieve you of any guilt you might have there. But see, my concern is that in, for most of us in living in Adelaide in, in 2020, that we are Western people. We're individualists. We tend to think that we don't need other people at all, that we can get by with the occasional pop-in to community, download my favorite podcast or my, you know, my own playlist. But hear me out, though. You can't read the book of Hebrews and come away thinking that the life of Jesus, Christianity, is a choose-your-own-adventure. It's an adventure, but it's one that has been chosen for you by the one who died for you. You have a Father in heaven who loves you so much more than you know. And he has given you a local church. Men and women who you need around you Men and women who need you around them so that you all stay believing that you don't shipwreck your faith, that they don't shipwreck their faith. Being a part of a local church, it's not a, it's not a tick box, but it is one of the critical means that God uses to keep you saved. And anybody that says that they're post-church or they don't need to be in covenant relationship with other Christians is deceived. When it comes to worshiping Jesus, go hungry, go often, and go with friends. All right, let me read the rest of the chapter, starting in verse 26. For if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy, based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who is regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know the one who has said, Vengeance belongs to me, and I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember the earlier days when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. 
For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions. Because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you need endurance so that after you've done God's will, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. But we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. All right, so this is the final warning passage in Hebrews. There are five of these. This is the last one. And it's not written for people outside the church, for non-believers. It's written for people inside the church. Verse 26, if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What does that mean? I mean, he's just spilled a huge amount of ink in this letter talking about how Jesus' sacrifice, his blood was enough, smashes every barrier between God, gives us full access. What does he mean? There no longer is a sacrifice. Is he saying that there's a limit to God's grace? That if I, you know, if I sin four times, that's fine, but if I sin that one more time, we're do I'm done. I'm, I'm headed to hell. Is that what he is saying? We need to be clear about this. This passage, like the other warnings, in Hebrews, addresses people who have, in some sense, been a part of the church community. They've experienced the blessings of the gospel, but rather than see um, these people that he's speaking of as, as genuine Christians who gave up their faith, it's better to see them a bit like the rocky soil that Jesus spoke about in the parable of the soils. The, they're those who start out really strong and passionate and quick, and then, and then life gets warm. The sun comes out, it starts to get hot, and the, they don't have deep roots, and they, they dry up. I get that, because um, I like to run occasionally, and, and it, this kind of describes the way that I run. It's, this is my running habits. I feel like if I could run for just 20 meters, I could break the world record. But then it gets tough. And the Christian life is a long-distance race. It's not a, a sprint. Genuine believers, children of God, are those who keep moving to the end. Not running at full pace. Not, you know, so you might stumble. I think all of us do. And so, you know, you'd be stumbling, dragging each other across the finish line, but you're still, you're moving. It's another reason you need godly people around you. We're going to get that in the next couple of chapters. You see this. But the warnings in the Bible are there for a reason. And they're not there to make you anxious and constantly wonder, am I really a Christian? Have I really, have I really blown it this time? It's not, it's not why they're there. These are a glorious reminder of God's grace to you. That because of Jesus, that we who used to be God's enemies... We who had no access, we were barred from his presence by fire and terror. We are now his children. The same hands of God in verse 31, it says, it's, what a terrifying thing it is to fall into the hands of a living God. The same hands that once caused terror are now the very hands that hold us close to his heart. 
John 10, 28 and 29. These are the words of Jesus. I have other sheep that are not of, of this fold, and I must bring them in. And then what does he say? He says, no one, when I'm, once those sheep are mine, no one will, will steal them. No one will snatch them from where? From my hands. Same hands that are terror for sinners and, and false believers are comfort and safety for us. So the first strategy that we need to hang on and keep running the race to keep resisting sin in our hearts is to remember the grace that he has shown us. And then the second strategy, it's in this last section of chapter 10. He's, he's kind of like a good coach, I think, here. If you ever played team sports, he's, he, he starts out by getting us to look backward at how far we've come. Like, think about those, all those like cheesy sports movies. It's like, you know, the last quarter of the game, it's the grand final or whatever it is, and the coach is giving the speech, and he's like, look at how far we come. We started out with these, you know, we were all B-grade actors. We weren't very good. And now we keep winning, and we keep winning, and we keep winning after the montage, and now here we are about to win the trophy. That's kind of what he's doing here. That's kind of what he's doing here. Remember the joy you had along the way when you first believed. Remember how many risks you took, how hard you worked. Remember how much you suffered for Jesus and suffered with others who were suffering for Jesus. He's, this is like showing, he's showing the highlight reel, the montage. Not to, he's not doing it to puff them up, to make them feel real good about themselves, but to remind them of how God, good God has been to them. And in light of that, he says, now don't throw away all of that. Don't throw away your confidence. There's a reward that's coming. You need to endure so that after you have done God's will, he says, verse 36, you will receive what was promised. He turns their focus right here from the past to the future. He says, your faith, it is based on what Jesus has done in the past, but there's a future element we believe him now based on what he's done in the past, and we believe what he's promised to do in the future. Same Jesus who secured your forgiveness on the cross in one moment in history is coming back in history. And when's he coming back? In a very little while. Soon. So we're faced now with two choices. One is to give up, to draw back, to shrink back, and face the judgment. But Or... We could press on. Look at what the coach does in the final verse. He says, guys, guys, this is who we are. Who are we as a team? We're not the people that give up at the last minute. We keep going until the end. And you need that kind of encouragement. I need that kind of encouragement. This is, the, this is what good brothers and sisters do for each other. They rally around each other. It's the very thing that keeps us running and trusting this final section of this epic chapter is two kinds of people. Those who have faith in Jesus, even when things are tough and bleak and hard, and those who give up, who turn back, who shrink back. The last group of folks, they end up destroying themselves, it says, but they're not so much people quitters as they are religious pretenders who are burned up by the wrath of God in the end. The first group are the people whose eyes stay locked on Jesus the whole time. And God, it says, takes pleasure in them. He delights in you. How good is that? Not because you deserve it, not because I certainly don't. He delights in you by sheer grace because when he looks at you, he, what he sees in you is the likeness of his son, Jesus, who he delights in. 
every day a little bit more. Let me close by just repeating that challenge from the, little sec- the middle section. Live out your faith by running to God in every situation and not away. It's an active decision. It's not passive. You go hungry. You go to him often. And you go with others. And when you do, you will never be disappointed. You will always be satisfied. His blood is the guarantee of your joy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the, once again, the promises of the gospel that you do not treat us as our sins deserve. Lord, you do not treat us as your enemies, and that is what we were before Christ came along and changed our story and transformed us from the inside out. We were your enemies, and yet while we were your enemies, barred from your presence by fire, You sent Jesus to die for us, to be the once-for-all sacrifice, to bring unrighteous people like us to your righteous presence. God, thank you for that truth. Help us, Lord, to keep going by in your strength, not our own. Help us to encourage One another, as we see the day approaching, as we see the finish line in the distance, help us to encourage each other, to cheer each other on, that our faith might not waver. Jesus, as we come to the table now, as your people, Lord, help us use these elements in this moment to remind us of your sacrifice. Lord, that any any anxiety in our hearts might melt away. And if there are those among us, Lord, who have not yet trusted you, whose lives are cent- have been centered on themselves, and Lord, would you grant th- those people, those men and women, repentance and the joy of coming into the family and knowing you for the first time and believing that your blood is enough. Lord, we pray all these things for your glory, for our joy, and in the precious name of Jesus, amen.